Welcome to the Closed Minded Podcast, where we read with an open mind in order to close it again on something solid. This is episode one of season one, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen. This is Seth and Josh. We are here hanging out, talking about the books that we like to read, the ideas that uh, engage us, and uh, just enjoying reading and learning and uh, engaging. So, Josh, how, how are you? I'm great, and I'm excited to talk about Alan Jacobs' How to Think, Survival Guide for a World at Odds. Is that actually the sub, the the subtitle? Yeah, that's the real subtitle. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't even know that. So clearly I've done my prep. <laughs> <laughs> you just didn't even realize that our world was even at odds. <laughs> that's right. It's so peaceful every time I log on to Facebook. <laughs> Apparently, that my the social network I've cultivated is so uniform to my own thinking that I'm not even aware of all of the bombasticness out there. <laughs> uh, Seth, I I'm great, and uh, I'm glad to be here today and to talk with you. Cool. So I know you and I are both pretty familiar with Alan Jacobs. Um, mm. I think we both agree he's one of our favorite authors. Um, we've well, each read a handful of the stuff he's written. Uh, but for those of you listening who are not familiar with him, uh, Jacobs is an English professor, has been for the last at least 30 years, I think. Um, most of that career has been spent uh, at Wheaton in Illinois. And uh, he's most recently, I think maybe the last four or five years, been at Baylor University in, I know it's in Texas. Where in Texas is it? Uh, Waco, Texas. That's right. And Chip and uh, Joanna. <laughs> uh, yeah, he actually wrote this book from the cafe in the Magnolia store. Yeah. I'm just kidding. That's that's a myth. <laughs> <laughs> but he was wearing <laughs> he was wearing a Texas home t-shirt. <laughs> All right. So some of the stuff of Jacobs that we've enjoyed in the past. Um, I know I've read The Narnian, which is a, a it's technically not a biography of C.S. Lewis. It's a biography of his imagination. And that uh, is, is a lot of fun. Uh, he's a huge Lewis fan and, and just a, a scholar of his thought and his theology and all of his literature and nonfiction. And uh, I just love anytime I see Alan Jacobs and C.S. Lewis in the same paragraph, you know, it's going to be fascinating. Um, he's written a collection of ex of essays called Wayfaring. Uh, I don't know if I've read that. Have you? Yeah, I have. Uh, a lot of those essays actually came, uh, in the middle of, uh, Potter mania. And, and he wrote, there's, I think four or five essays in that collection where he's just analyzing, uh, <laughs> Harry Potter in real time. And he's engaging with the themes and the, and uh, of the books. And it's really fascinating. And there's a lot of other, uh, interesting, essays in the book. And, um, but that's one of the primary things I love about Jacobs is he's a brilliant essayist. Uh, he keeps you engaged. He's, um, he's wide ranging in his, in his thinking. He's a lot like Lewis in that some sense in, in which everything that Jacob says, it seems like everything he's ever thought is somehow connected and related to it. And so we can jump in one essay from <clears throat> psychology to the humanities to, uh, to English, to education, to politics. And it all seems so fluid and connected and intelligent. And you're caught within the brilliance of his mind. It's really fascinating. And one of the books I really love that Jacobs also wrote is The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. Yes. Which is a short book you can, you can read in maybe a day or two. 
And, and his basic argument in the book is there's so many distractions and our attention is a, not a renewable resource. So don't read crappy books. <laughs> it's basically <laughs> the premise of the entire book. And it's, yeah, and that's Jacobs. He's not someone that you don't want to read. Yeah, he's he's really fun. So if if you haven't read any books by Alan Jacobs or any of his essays, highly, highly recommend it. He's extremely interesting, very edifying. Uh, it's never disappointing or boring. It's always valuable. So I basically scrambled to pick up anything that he writes. Uh, so he's just fantastic. So um, this book that we're talking about today, uh, How to Think, is a pretty short book. It's like 150, 160 pages. Uh, just came out uh, about a month or a month and a half ago. And uh, it's really timely. It's about, well, how to think. So, you know, we're in a culture where there's a lot of argument and a lot of um, uh, combat going on, especially online. And in, in a sense, you know, it, it would you'd be forgiven for thinking that that a lot of people are doing a lot of thinking today. And in reality, it's it's really the opposite. And so um, Jacobs really is has written sort of a mini dissertation on why we don't think as well as we think we do. We're not really as good at evaluating ideas as we think we are. And um, and we're not very good at, at treating people well that, that disagree with us, or at least we're not good at giving them a chance or considering them uh, as fully human if they hold something that is at odds with what we consider canon and obvious and gospel. So um, he has a discussion of that and why that is and really digs into the weeds of that. And he talks, you know, brings in social psychology, a variety of, of scientific literature. Um, but it's really not a data driven book. It's, it's really a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's an extended, um, just philosophical dis- discussion about why we don't think and how to go about getting better at it if you want to, because there are plenty of people that really have no desire to do that. And so if you realize that you're one of the people that do wants to be able that, that does do wants, I can't talk. If you're one of the people that does want to, does do. <laughs> that doesn't want to think well and uh, think with charity towards your fellow man, uh, even if they disagree with you, then this is a fantastic primer for that and a, just a good reminder and a helpful corrector. And uh, it brings a lot of clarity to how to engage on that. So um, we're just kind of going to go through some of the things that we liked about the book. This is by no means an informal or it's by no means a formal book review or outline or anything like that. We're just going to have a discussion and I hope you enjoy uh, listening in and uh, you're welcome to leave a comment on the blog at some point, or if you want to email us, you can, we'll have the contact info at the end of the show. Uh, And of course we've got um, a Facebook page that you can visit as well. Facebook.com slash closed minded podcast. So Josh, let's get into kind of what he starts off with at the beginning with talking about, um, Thinking being, um, we need to think of it more of, of as an art rather than a science and the way that, you know, humanistic traditions can contribute to how we think. Yeah, you know, uh, Jacobs really engages with two um, significant works um, by Kahneman and Haidt uh, over the past uh, five to ten years where they're talking about how difficult it is for us to think and that we have 
as human beings, as soon as we begin to think, we start falling into pitfalls and traps like confirmation bias or outgroup or in-group thinking. Or um, and 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 he sees all these as very important, but he thinks that over the past several years in our conversations about thinking and about especially public thinking and why we are unable to communicate and certainly to persuade one another. Uh, we've done way too much work on the science of thinking and not on the reality that most of our thinking, especially in engagement with one another is actually an, an art form. So, uh, so one of the things he says on, on page one or two of the book, he says, that we go astray when we think of our task primarily, he's talking about our task as becoming better thinkers, as overcoming bias. And Jacob's contention is that the fundamental problem that we have is really a problem of the orientation of the world, of the will. <laughs> In other words, it's not that we um, need to overcome biases. It's, it's more that we are determined by our will to not think. Uh, think thinking is hard. I mean, it's hard to engage with other people's viewpoints. It's hard to engage with maybe complicated um, questions or propositions or premises. And I mean, honestly, I think this is connected to the information overload of our age and the social media world. We are getting information in our minds so fast and so quickly. And the hardest thing to do is to step back, to take that information and begin to think about it instead of just react to it uh, because it it's unfamiliar. It, maybe it pushes us out of things that we know. It complicates our lives. It, I mean, honestly, it complicates our relationships. I, I, think about the social media. This is the term blocking. <laughs> if you get someone who continually brings up either contradicts your own points or gives you information that you don't want to handle, you just right, you just block that person. You're just going to socially cut them out of your circle so you don't have to actually think. And, you know, I think that's fascinating. He engages with this kind of topic throughout the whole book. Now, I will admit to maybe a couple of times muting people on Facebook. And it's less about politics and it's more probably about just the things that they're posting just bore me to tears and I don't want to see it on my wall. But I have occasionally said, you know, I don't want to see this person's post anymore. But I uh, am proud. Me. Yeah, I am proud to to admit that I have never unfriended anybody out of like spite or anger or out of disagreement or anything like that. I have had somebody unfriend me because of that. Or at least I'm pretty sure it's because of that, and <laughs> that offended me because I would never do that. Like I don't care how much we disagree. I don't care how how far apart we are, and even if it's you know maybe it's a it's a bitter disagreement or it's vitriolic, like. I would never unfriend somebody because of that. That just strikes me as foolish and stupid and petty. But yeah, people do that all the time. Not that I'm holding myself up as this paragon of virtue on social media, but that's one thing I admit that I've, I've never done. And I'm sort of glad about it. What about the soft block? So are there people who have so annoyed you or their positions are so maybe um, repugnant to you. One of the terms that Jacobs uses for someone who is at the opposite end of the spectrum on you philosophically or politically or, or whatever um, is repugnant cultural other. So someone who is um, culturally different than you, whatever culture you're, um, we're talking about. And because of that, they become repugnant to you. And if is there is someone like that who you remain friends with on Facebook or on Twitter or, or Instagram or whatever, but 
you have no longer interact with that person on their wall. You don't um, like their posts. You don't <laughs> engage with them on their comments or anything like that simply because, um, or maybe you just do this. You start, you, you read their post and you just roll your eyes and then scroll past, which I think is a, a form of sort of a soft block, if you will. I definitely do that. <laughs> it's a form of what? <laughs> soft block. A form of block? Yeah, it's a form of block. It's like a soft block. You're like, I'm still friends with you, but I'm just not going to engage with you in any way. I suppose, yeah. I mean, there's there's a, probably a mix of motives in there. Sometimes it's because I just dismiss the person. I don't actually take any action to like remove them from my list, but I definitely don't choose to engage them anymore. Um and yeah, I guess sometimes that's, that's, you know, reflects poorly on me. And sometimes it just reflects on the fact that I know that it's probably not going to be a productive conversation, or it could be a recognition that sometimes my motives in posting on social media can be more about like scoring points against somebody or scoring points for the other people that are going to see it. Not because I'm necessarily trying to like actually convince somebody of the truth of my argument, like so, and and sometimes I have to stop myself and be like, look, am, am I actually trying to win the person or am I trying to win the argument? And sometimes if I'm just wading into something just so that I can throw a few grenades, even if they're like, I'm not trolling, but it's, they're legitimate points. But if I'm just there to sort of like <clears throat> put somebody in their place, then that's probably not a good reason to, to dive in. Sure. Well, I mean, we do that kind of thing in um, in our non-digital worlds anyway. You know, if you're in a room and you see somebody like, man, if I start talking to that person, I'm going to be talking to them for 20 minutes and it's going to go nowhere and it's going to be pointless and I'm going to feel like I wasted time and they're annoying. And so we kind of don't make eye contact and skirt around the room. I mean, that's, that's the same thing as like a, a Facebook soft block. Yeah. Well, I, you know, that's a good, it's interesting that you brought that up because, you know, I had my 10 year college reunion, uh, this fall mm -hmm. and, um, there were some people that I wasn't sure if they were going to show up or not. I kind of expected them to, uh, and they ended up not. So I didn't have to, none of this that I was worrying about came to pass, but I was sort of bracing myself and sort of setting my attitude in advance. These are people that I've had some pretty good skirmishes with on Facebook. I was never like close friends with them in school, but um, we've had some interactions online in the last 10 years. Um, some of them have been pretty brutal. And um, I was basically preparing myself to, if I saw them, I was to be fully uh, engaged with being friendly with them and reaching out to them and, you know, making it clear that, just because we've had some fights on social media or because we disagree on some really fundamental, you know, political and religious topics um, that are really deal breakers in a lot of ways in terms of, you know, uh, living together in, in a community of ideas um, that wasn't going to stop me from being friendly and asking about their life and, you know, enjoying the shared connection of graduating from the same school and having a lot of similar friends that overlapped. Like, I was, I did not want there to be any sort of an awkward thing. I didn't want them to feel like I was avoiding them or that I was angry at them because we've disagreed online or that I was judgmental toward them because of whether, you know, lifestyle decisions that they've made or, you know, people that they're dating or political positions they've taken online. Um, 
that was really important to me for there not to be, you know, any sort of bad blood when I interacted with any of these people in person. And there was at least one example where I did have an opportunity to just be really friendly and warm to this guy that we've had some some fights online and by email. Um, and I just wanted it to be very clear that like, you know, there was nothing, there was no animosity between us. And that was really important to me. And there was one person that, yeah, I ended up getting an opportunity to do that with. I was stealing myself for there to be more and there's fewer people showed up to the reunion than I expected. But that was, that was important to me. Well, I think the fascinating thing about that is um, in Jacob's assessment of where we are at sort of <laughs> sociologically, you are the rare person and um, most people um, don't take the time to critically think through what you just expressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons why um, he argues that we do that is because it does take patience, grace, and some amount of courage to interact with people um, who have differing views than us because I think this is a really significant thing that Jacob's bring brought out for me that I, I hadn't really thought about before, but um, thinking is not limited to a um, esoteric realm of logical premises and conclusions, but, and this is connected to his theme of, of thinking as an art. But when we actually think on the ground with other people, there are relational goods involved. And so changing our minds is not as simple as just acknowledging that other person has more compelling logic or a tighter argument or more valid points. But changing our minds also includes relational goods because I'm connected to other relational people. You talked about the people that you were meeting at this uh, 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 reunion who um, in the in the in the world of ideas, their ideas actually created a wall or barrier between you. And um, and I think that social bonding that or the social wall that's created by different ideas is really fascinating because um we have to, when we take positions, it puts us in connection with other people who hold the same intellectual positions that we hold. And when, if we change them, what we end up doing is um, removing ourselves from the social group in which we are in and moving ourselves either into a different social group or more likely, if we want to be most free with our thinking, we're moving ourselves into a sort of in-between world where we're kind of one foot or in this world and one foot in this other world, we're kind of a bridge between different groups or we're, or we're lonely in some sense because, um, uh, you know, parroting the social line will allow us to get a lot of social approval. And what we tend to do as human beings, because we are drawn, we're social beings. We need to be connected to other people. And so because of that, we often make that social desire drive our, our, thinking in quotation marks. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what Jacob spends a lot of time explaining that, you know, thinking is an, is an inherently social activity that, you know, we often maybe have this idea and he kind of rips, um, 
Neil is it De- Neil deGrasse Tyson about a line that he says about well you just need to use reason and and you know rationality to decide everything in society and law and all of that and and that's like it sounds good on the surface like yeah we should be rational about what about our ideas but it's it's way more complicated than that is that it's impossible to think apart from a community of people. And so there's a lot of social reinforcement and, um, you know, social policing of, you know, little mini orthodoxies within communities about what's, what's acceptable, what's appropriate. And it is really hard to exercise. um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, to, To challenge anything that's that's socially reinforced in whatever community you're in, which is why, you know, we use shorthand to understand a lot of ideas or to refer to people or topics or concepts. Um, and it, and it makes it difficult to, to challenge those things. And so what Jacob says is that the way that you get around that, the way that you sort of open your mind or expand your understanding and your empathy for people and their ideas that maybe you don't share is to be in multiple communities. So be in overlapping communities that are often at odds with each other. And he brings up his own situation, which is that he he's an academic. So he lives in this world of academia, um, which is generally not Christian. Now he's in a Christian university system. So to some extent, he's not quite um, out there in, in the broader academic world in terms of it being primarily atheistic, but as a whole, Academia is still uh, a different world than than anywhere else, particularly um, Christians and particularly conservative Christians. And so he's got one foot in this world of conservative Christianity and another foot in the world of academia. And being in that unique position allows him to understand the lingo, to have empathy for the perspectives and the beliefs and the assumptions underlying everything there in each community and he doesn't have to battle them. He can, he can see both of them to some extent. He can step outside all of it and be able to expand his thinking and, um, and engage both sides. And I think there's a ton of value in that. And that's one of the, one of his primary recommendations is that we find multiple communities that overlap that are different that we can be a part of and, uh, and be involved in as a, as a method and, uh, means of expanding our thinking and our empathy and our willingness to entertain other ideas. Another great example that he uses along that same theme is um, the the story of Megan Phelps Roper. Yes, this, this lady who, uh, yeah, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church, uh, which is a very uh, <laughs> closed off community. It's in uh, Topeka, Kansas. It's um, this group of people who have made it their mission to sort of. <laughs> Um, condemn all homosexual behavior and thereby anything that's in their minds tainted with any sort of homosexuality um, or any sort of impurity or, or anything like that. And so they picket um, churches that doesn't don't tow whatever line they want them to tow. They picket funerals of soldiers. They picket government buildings and institutions. I mean, they, um, and, Megan Phelps Roper is is um, one of the family members of this founding uh, uh, <clears throat> Phelps family, 
and she was involved in kind of doing the social uh, media component of, of this of this church. And um, she ended up changing her mind on all of the deeply held beliefs of this of the Phelps Church, Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah, she she came out of that subculture and, and ended up disavowing it. Yeah. And a lot of people talked about this fact that Megan Phelps Roper began to think for herself during this time. Like she she got a head on her shoulders. She started to think for herself. And then she finally got away from those people. And Jacob says, no, she never actually started thinking for herself. What she actually started doing was thinking with different people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fascinating because thinking is necessarily and it has to be social. Be, you know, oftentimes when people say something like, oh, you started thinking for herself or himself, what they really actually mean, Jacobs points out, is they're just ceasing to sound like people that they dislike and they start to sound more like people that I approve of or people like me. Well, and, and, and flip it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Flip it around. You know, it goes it goes both ways. If they, if they come in your direction from someplace that you disagreed with, they're like, oh, they started thinking for, their, for yourself. But if it's the other way around, somebody leaves your subculture and goes somewhere else that you don't approve of, you're like, oh, they got brainwashed. Exactly. Um, and I think, but that's part of the fear. The part of the fear of the reality of our thinking being social means that if someone changes our minds, when we start talking to someone with a different set of ideas or a different set of beliefs and they begin to change our minds, um, it isn't just that uh, – <laughs> It isn't just that we change our minds. It's that we um, we may be losing either social standing in the community that we were in or we start losing completely being in that social circle at all. And, and that makes thinking, truly thinking, and being open-minded, if you will, or being, um, being willing to be persuaded a really sort of, I guess, socially dangerous place to be. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about some of the ways that, that Jacobs brings in um, the importance of basically setting aside your pride, having some humility and being willing to consider, you know, the, the humanity uh, of the people that you disagree with and really engage charitably with who they are and what their ideas are. Like he says, um, he says over the years, I've had to acknowledge that some of the people whose views on education appall me are more devoted to their students than I am, and that some of the people whose theological positions strike me as immensely damaging to that to the health of the church are nevertheless more prayerful and charitable, more Christ-like even, than I will ever be. This is immensely disconcerting, even when it doesn't mean that those people are right about those matters we disagree on, but being around those people forces me to confront certain truths about myself that I would rather avoid. And that alone is reason to seek every means possible to constrain the energies of animus. What do you think about that? Well, it's fascinating that uh, we talk about things like um, formation of character or, or spiritual formation or the development of yourself as a human being. Um, we tend to talk about things that we do but we don't tend to talk about ways that we think. And, um, but if we understand that the way that we think and how we think is a social relational good, if we understand that, 
um, we think in community with other people, then one of the, especially maybe, especially in our age, maybe, um, to think well actually becomes a formative, a character forming event and requires things like humility, like patience, like giving your opponent or whoever who has a, a different view than you the benefit of the doubt. And um, I think what's most striking about the quote that you just quoted from Jacobs is that um, if we really actually engage with the person that we're speaking to, despite the view that they have, which we think could be really messed up or very wrong, or like he says, it could be immensely damaging. Um, the person themselves may be, uh, have a better character than we do. And that, and only if we are able to engage in that conversation in, in, a, in a real sense of humility in a, in, a, in a, a willingness, even in some sense to be persuaded, or at least to see their, pers- their position from their point of view, then it, it could become for us a, a real <laughs> convicting experience. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because he, you know, he says he, he, he describes the way that we tend to interact with people that we we disagree with. Like we, you know, we don't just say we disagree with somebody. We say that their beliefs are disgusting or, you know, maybe, right. maybe they're not a monster, but they're seriously messed up or they're morally corrupted. They're a, a hater of some sort, or we're going to attribute some sort of psychological affliction to them, whether that we call them fearful or angry or bitter. Um, yeah. So there's like yeah. this embedded mm. assumption in all these statements that being wrong or being in error about whatever the issue is, you know, results from some sort of pathology. So, you know, so like, so-and-so wouldn't be wrong if you weren't morally or psychologically dysfunctional. Like that's the implicit, but sometimes it's explicit message that people get when they're arguing online. It's, it's so ridiculous, but we're all victims of it and we have all done it. Well, it happens so fast on, Facebook, <laughs> you'll see people jump into an ad hominem argument immediately when they disagree with the point. What they bring up is, is that <laughs> the other person's position is not just wrong for some logical reason or because they, um, you know, something that they've <laughs> said is factually untrue. It's that they, <laughs> their motivation for their argument is immoral or dysfunctional or psychologically broken. Yeah, so it the thing, the 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 place that I like where Jacobs takes takes that discussion is that he says this, you know, the 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 why so and so is wrong question is useful in helping us to avoid a more challenging question. So, which is how do we know that so and so is wrong about this issue? So, you know, th- he says that that's always a question that's worth asking. Even if, you know, what so-and-so believes is that the Holocaust never happened or that Barack Obama is some secret Muslim. Um, but just, just asking this question of, okay, so how do we know that, that John Smith is wrong about issue X? That, that serves as a useful intellectual checkup, as a reminder to um, assess the varying degrees of confidence in which we hold our views. So I think that's really important is, you know, to set aside that somebody may be wrong 
and really ask, how do we know that they're wrong? And is there is there an explanation for their view that can be more charitable than all of these other pathologies or assumptions about their motives or their psychological state? Like, like when you put it that that simply, um, it's pretty damning to when you think about the way that that we treat people that we disagree with. Like that is really terrible that we do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's fascinating. It connects with uh, an illustration that Jay Gibbs used, and I don't remember where he used this exactly, but uh, there's, a, there's a story um, from uh, Malcolm Gladwell where he talks about Will Chamberlain and how Will Chamberlain, who is hands down one of the best basketball players of all time, um, he's the only player to ever score over 100 points in a basketball game. When you think about that, that's amazing. I thought he was famous for sleeping with a bunch of women. Well, he was famous for sleeping with a bunch of women too. I mean, he was famous for multiple reasons. That's because he was a terrible, pathologized human being. Wait, he was he was a morally and psychologically dysfunctional, and he. Sh- <laughs> but his pro- but in Malcolm Gladwell's uh, assessment of his career, one of the things that Wilt Chamberlain never learned how to do, which would have made him, um, like untouchable by any other basketball player ever was he never learned how to be consistent at the free throw line because shooting underhand, which is the most consistent way of doing it, Wilt Chamberlain thought was a sissy way of doing it. And so he wouldn't do it because ultimately he didn't want to look like a sissy, which would impair his ability to get women and sleep with them. And so um, Malcolm Gladwell says he he had – an opportunity, maybe even a responsibility to be the best basketball player of all time, to be at the pinnacle of his career, of his job. And so he irrationally did not do what he needed to do to get there. And Jacobs just gently points out that there was nothing actually irrational about his decision. He just had a different different goal rationale than Gladwell. Gladwell's assumption was that your career is the most important thing to you. And Chamberlain's assumption was that his sexual conquest was the most important thing to him. And, um, and I think that happens, though, when we engage with other people, when we come to the table with different assumptions about what ultimate goods are, then we will inevitably um, impute bad motives to other people because we are operating on a different set of assumptions about what is driving that person because we think they what should be driving them is what's driving us. Yeah. And if we're, we're going to be able to like converse with them and, and, and understand their points, we have to be willing to listen to what their ends are and what is driving them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we are coming up on uh, a time threshold here that I don't want to go past. So um, let's, let's jump to uh, Jacob's conclusion where he gives us uh, a thinking person's checklist and he talks about the importance of of checklists and uh, their usefulness in keeping track of everything that we need to remember. Um, and that's that's not specific to thinking; it's it's all over the place. Um, but we'll we'll hit a few of these, and then then we'll wrap it up. Uh, and if you want to get into the details more, uh, highly recommend that you get the book. Uh, but one of the things that he says, and I, I, this is definitely not new to him, but he says if you're you know when you're faced with provocation to respond to what somebody said. You know, give it five minutes, take a walk, weed the garden, chop some vegetables, whatever, just do something. And I, I, I've definitely taken advantage of that. Not as much as I, 
probably should have because sometimes I just want to fire off a Scud missile and um, you know watch somebody explode and and enjoy the victory, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't always work, especially when, you know, you end up being wrong and you have to put your foot in your mouth. Cause that's happened to me as well when I've been too quick to respond online. Um, so even from the perspective of, you know, self-interested perspective of wanting to, to make sure that you're right, <laughs> you know, give it some time. Yeah. Um, but also just from the perspective of, you know, wanting to respect people's humanity and really take a minute to think about, is this something that I want to toss out there? Is this a grenade that's going to do more damage than good? Am I arguing to convince the man or to win the argument? All of those things yeah. that are really important with evaluating what's an appropriate response and just giving it some time, letting yourself breathe for a little bit is really, uh, really helpful. Sure. He, t- he talks about uh, also avoiding people who fan flames or, uh, or just avoiding trolls, you know, don't get involved in conversations where, you know, the person has no interest in conversing, no interest in listening. But it, I mean, an attendant to that, it also means don't be a person who fans flames. Don't be a grenade launcher. Don't, um, uh, don't be a person who just steps into conversations to, to drop bombs and then walk out of. Um, um, and, and I think another one, and I felt this significant, I don't know what you felt, um, just being on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, Twitter, that um, you feel that pressure, that social pressure that you need when whatever happens out in the world happens. Do you feel that pressure that you immediately need to weigh in with your voice on whatever it is, signal your virtue or right-mindedness or or whatever your view is on um, whatever the issue is, whatever the hot-button topic is? Do you feel that pressure? Yeah. There's some some really good advice in here about – um, who you gravitate towards, who you associate with, who you spend time with, the community that you're cultivating. And it's really important to find people that value genuine community and can handle disagreement. Um, you know, you, you don't, you don't want the, the sort of community where, you know, and cult is obviously not what is in place for most of the most situations, but that's a good, uh, extreme, uh, terminology to use just about the, the hypersensitivity to, um, you know, any, any deviation from an orthodoxy within a group, uh, is, is not a good, not a good sign of, of true genuine community, uh, and not, not a good sign of, of a place where you can actually think aloud and challenge ideas and engage, um, so gravitate towards those types of people. Um, I know that I, I can think of at least, uh, one or two friends in my life, uh, that are, I'm, you know, personal in, you know, face to face friends with as well as, as well as online where, you know, they're, they're, it's, they're not reliably, I don't really know for sure where they're going to land on whatever the issue is. Now, you know, when I finally get them in a conversation, they're biblical, they are thoughtful and they're not knee jerk to wherever they end up landing, but it's it's not they're they're not people that I can necessarily uh, can just assume that they're going to fall into you know maybe where I would automatically fall on a particular issue there which I think is is helpful because it forces me to be thoughtful and considerate and think well I you know I don't necessarily know that this person that I respect is going going to pat me on the back if I express 
this view or give some sort of, you know, cultural affirmation on Facebook or in a conversation. But I know them and I respect them and I know that they're intellectually honest and they're thoughtful. And so being around those types of people is really good and helpful for, you know, my own um, keeping myself in check with engaging ideas and being charitable towards people that I disagree with and maybe putting a check on my assumptions about my, my own little orthodoxies and dismissing people that don't toe the line with them. So being in community with those types of people is really important and they can help you assess your repugnances as Jacob says. Well, I think he gives a lot of good advice as well. When you engage with a, a people who have um, positions that are different than yours um, to truly be patient and, and actually listen and describe the positions that they take, even in the language that they're going to use. Um, and he talks about without indulging in, in other wordsing. So um, not listening to what they say and then just dismissing it and saying, in other words, you're a colonialist or in other words, you're a, a white supremacist or in other words, um, because uh, you just, uh, you negate, their position, their arguments, and you then in bring in your repugnances against them. And I think the last thing he says, he has a, in his thinking person's checklist, the last one is just be brave. I think for me, that was one of the biggest takeaways from the whole book was that thinking and thinking well is actually an act of courage and bravery because there's, there's more involved in thinking, um, than, um, than just <clears throat> knowing the right thing. There's the relational goods are so intrinsically tied to what we think that um, to change our mind is significant. And, and also that it, it requires the pursuit of truth requires um, because it's so noble, it requires true acts of, of questing and bravery. And it, it means that there is something to hope for that we could become better people um, as we pursue the truth. And, and that means not just more right people. It means better people with better characters, with more humble, uh, more kind, more loving. And, um, and it requires bravery to walk into the things that are necessary to experience to develop character like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as usual, Jacobs is edifying and stimulating and rewarding and challenging uh, and just a lot of fun to read. I just love everything that he writes. So uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for your insights, Josh, and your perspective on the book. Um, had a really uh, good time discussing this with you. Um, that'll wrap it up for episode one. Um, this book was particularly exciting to launch the podcast with just because uh, all of Jacob's insights really connect well and dovetail totally unintentionally um, with the launch of this, sh uh, this show, this podcast, I, this book was not out. I didn't even, wasn't aware of it when I was putting this together and sort of dreaming, envisioning what it would be. Um, but man, does it fit with, uh, the name of the show, close minded podcast. Uh, we really want to, uh, engage with an open mind, but open mindedness in itself is really not any good. Uh, we want to close it on solid ideas and come to conclusions and yet maintain you know, humility and charity toward our fellow man and, um, 
and that's just extremely important. So that's what this podcast is about. That's what we are intending to engage on as we read uh, fiction, nonfiction, anything uh, that we can uh, get our hands on that interests us. So thank you so much for listening. Check out the show notes page for this episode at closedmindedpodcast.com slash one, and you'll find links to How to Think and Other Works by Alan Jacobs. I also linked to this really great uh, roundtable discussion called A Conversation on the Imagination of C.S. Lewis uh, that Jacobs did with two more of my favorite authors, uh, and it is solid gold. I highly recommend it. Again, you can get all that content at closedmindedpodcast.com slash one. That's it for the show. Please subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play if you want to be updated when new episodes go live. And with that, go forth with an open mind, but remember to close it on something solid. See you next time. I wish upon you true And all you feel is doubt I hope you know that an open mind still knows when to shut things out. I wish upon you a brave heart that will always rise above. But most of all, I wish.